Okay, welcome to the podcast. We've got something a bit different today as Eleanor Winton joins me to talk about futurology, business strategy thinking, and how we can plan more effectively for the unknown future. I hope you enjoy it. recording. So Eleanor Winton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Uh, so we met a few weeks ago at a workshop that Parmenia and the, the platform were running and then again at a conference only a week or so ago, uh, the Parmenian Let's Grow conference. So mm-hmm. uh, as soon as we, the day we spent together um, along with various others, uh, Kate Shaw and a few others doing the, the, the workshop session, I was just so entranced by the work that we did. I it was just mm-hmm. enormous fun and really stimulating. So was, you know, I came away from that thinking, right, I really want to get you on this podcast. So I'm delighted you're here now. But, you know, when I got the invite, the question in my mind and the question I want to put to you now is, <laughs> look, Eleanor, what even is a futurologist? How do you describe what you do? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. It's an interesting one because I find that I'm more often described as a futurologist by other people than I would describe myself as a futurologist because sometimes it has a slightly unhelpful connotation where it seems like it's a bit like a mystic meg sort of thing you know yeah. crystal ball gazing uh you used a slide with that in your presentation <laughs> <laughs> that was ironic that yeah, was ironic okay, okay. <laughs> um but yeah no you're, you're quite right it's that it's you know that of course there is an element of that to it because you've got to be able to be help people to be imaginative and creative because we don't know what the future looks like but you know every futurologist will apply what are known as kind of foresight methodologies so that they'll have tools that they can deploy to help people think in that way. And most of those have been around, they've probably been around for 60 or 70 years or if not longer and developed in businesses like Shell or developed by the US government or by the military to try to understand these really complex future situations. So so yeah, how, how would I describe a futurologist? Someone who can help you Think differently about something that you probably don't think about much at all, really. And and how did you come to be doing this work? Because, like, there's not there's not an obvious Mm. career path into this kind of thing. No, (laughs) it's an interesting one. I so I spent the first half of my career. I'm a lawyer by background, and and spent the first half of my career looking at very much looking with hindsight, I suppose you would say. So doing investigations, so looking at um, money laundering, fraud, professional misconduct, that sort of thing which I loved, which is totally fascinating. But there comes a point where you realise that actually, you know, looking backwards all the time does mean that you miss an opportunity to prevent the thing happening again. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, in the places that I worked to do that work, we did have other teams that could help with that more forward-looking bit. But I was always a bit frustrated that that I wasn't part of what I did. So at the time, I was working at KPMG and we were going through a bit of a sort of innovation transformation. So it was around 2009, 2010, and what we needed to to be able to do was to create something, some sort of burning platform, some sort of incentive to get the senior people in the business to behave differently, to think differently, to take some more risk. And the future, you know, understanding what the future looks like, where's competition going to come from, where's growth going to come from, that became a really helpful tool to do that. And so in the course of in the course of kind of delivering that work within the firm and for clients, I spent a lot of time being trained in all of these various methodologies and just absolutely loved that part of the work and it's interesting that you said that you you'd had a lot of fun at the workshop that was the thing for me I just I really wanted to have fun <laughs> doing my work and to, to to show that actually to do that forward thinking piece of work 
it should be fun. It should be creative. It should be imaginative. It should be energized. We shouldn't kind of live in fear of the future or try to analyze it. It's a much more creative process than that, really. Yeah, no, it was. It was. It was a lot of fun. I, I'd also say it made my head hurt a bit. It was quite challenging. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. To think in different ways. Success. But I guess also, you know, you talk about learning lessons from things that have gone wrong in the past, which is mm, where you came mm. from on this. I guess the risk with that is it's quite linear. You learn how to avoid that particular problem that has already occurred in the past, and try and, and, and you know you yeah. should you know don't keep making the same mistakes. So if something's gone wrong in the past, learn from it. Don't let it happen again. But that doesn't help yeah. you anticipate tomorrow's problems. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because often the problems that we have dealt with before, just the problem that we might be looking at in the future is just a little bit adjacent to it. And we sort of have a habit of instead of thinking about, you know, what's the stretch of that? What's the adjacency to the thing that we've done before? And so we waste a lot of plans that we might have made in the past as well. And that's really unfortunate. And it's also very human behavior that we, you know, it's this availability bias. I think, again, we we talked about in the workshop, but that, that sort of heuristic that makes us think about the future only in the context of what we've seen already and actually just applying a little bit more imagination or stretching a little bit what we've seen before what could happen differently those sorts of questions can be really valuable so how do you um, clearly you're you're helping businesses think a bit differently and anticipate problems really Mm. hard to actually demonstrate the value of that you know you're talking to Mm. to a manager whether it's an IFA business or you know big big financial mm. business or whatever or engineering businesses you know to talk to them about this is how i'm going to help your business prosper i mean it's quite hard to mm. quantify that kind of stuff isn't it it is and it's not helpful either if you if you do the work and then turn up five years later and go mm, i told you so <laughs> that's not helpful for me the value is in the anticipation and that as soon as you're, you start to do the work that often starts to become clear to people so there are certain triggers, obviously, that make people want to do this work. Sometimes it's a new competitor or it's a regulatory shift or it's a changing customer behavior or a customer requesting something that is, we don't quite understand how to deliver. And when people are in that frame of mind, when there's a trigger, then that's a great time to do the work because there's a real will to understand how things might change. And always it's, you know, the, the risk of it is that, and the thing I have to be really clear with people about upfront is that this isn't about now making a set of predictions that will definitely be right it's actually about anticipating a range of possible outcomes in the hope that having done that we're ready to adapt when the time comes or that we have something in the bank that we can deploy you know i get the fact that you know doing it in a slightly crisis-y moment when a business is faced by an immediate Mm. challenge will certainly help to focus minds and make them more receptive to Mm. okay how do we think about how we do things differently? But presumably, ideally, you do it a bit before that, you know, when it's not a crisis moment yeah. and, and, you know, you, you, you've got more time to strategize and think about the future That's in a right. measured way. And it's interesting. So I have, I have a client who um, just before, when we talk about them in the book, actually, so Breaks, who, you know, huge food service business across the UK. And I did some work with them probably about six months before the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, this is about generating innovative ideas for the future of their business. And so working with some of their younger sort of top talent, and they came up with a load of really fantastic ideas, which at the time, there was no will to deploy, one of which was that shift from, you know, delivering, you know, in a a big logistics network to pubs and, and bars and restaurants and schools and so on on that the way that they'd always done it and these younger people were saying well could we do a sort of hello fresh kind of thing for our stuff could we get the chefs to be more creative could we do a bit more of a retail proposition or a digital proposition and there was a lot of excitement around that in the room but not much within the business because clearly there were other priorities at the time 
But having done that piece of thinking, when the pandemic came along, they, they were able to move to that model within a matter of days, you know, mm-hmm. so they had something that they could pick up and say, oh, we've talked about this before. And then there was a real will in the organization to do it. So I think sometimes even just having considered it in advance, even just having vaguely kind of scoped out, how would it work? What would it look like? It just puts you in a much better position to act quickly when the time comes. You set out in the book, and by the way, the book you've referred Mm. to in passing there is the the Disruption Game Plan that you wrote Mm. along with Ruth Murray Webster, which is... That's um, right, yeah. uh, I'd I'd sort of describe this as a how-to manual for how to do kind of future thinking. And uh, But you set out in there, one of the things you talked about was the timeline for that business. Was it breaks? That's right, breaks, yeah. Uh, And and the timeline for how they shifted the business to to this new distribution Mm. model was extraordinary because they'd done Mm. the work. I thought that was really illustrative. Mm. Yeah how it can, it. it can pay dividends. But you've got to have the willingness to do that in the first place, perhaps when you're That's not right. in crisis mode. Mm. You also <laughs> talked about, when we were doing the workshop, shifting, mm. the, I thought it was really interesting the way you talked about shifting the risk lens from high impact, yeah. high probability to high impact, mm. high uncertainty. So just talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's really interesting. So this, it's a framework lots of people listening will will be familiar with. So this this kind of traditional way of understanding future risk where we consider, you know, whether it's high or low impact and high or low likelihood. And that really plays into the problems that we talked about just a short while ago. So first of all, it only looks at risk. It's a very narrow and prejudgmental way of looking at the future. And in a kind of certain time when the risks are pretty static, then that is probably okay. But when the risks are really unpredictable, it's not not super helpful to only look through that lens because it may be some, something that appears to be a risk may turn out to be an opportunity or there may be an opportunity to mitigate it. So there's that. Then, then the second axis is likelihood. And that, again, the problem with that is that when we try to predict the future likelihood of something, we refer to our own experience mm-hmm. or we, we as a group, as a leadership team, we talk to each other chances are our experiences are pretty similar unless we're doing really well on diversity in our in our top team. So it just reinforces all of the biases that we have. And what we end up with then in that top right-hand corner on the matrix is things that we consider to be very high likelihood and which will impact us very much as a business. And so we create a load of false certainty around those. So we say, right, these things, these things are definitely going to happen. They're definitely going to be impactful. So let's develop some plans. And you can spend a lot of time and money then developing plans for things that might never happen. And you also create an enormous blind spot around those things that you consider to be low likelihood. In fact, you probably ignore them as a business. So it's so a big blind spot and then a false certainty in that top right hand corner. And so when we do scenario planning, we use a slightly different matrix. But I think, you know, it deserve, that matrix deserves to be freed <laughs> from scenario planning and used more generally in business, which is, you keep the impact axis, but you change likelihood for uncertainty. So what does that mean? So uncertainty is about the range of potential outcomes that a driver of change might generate for your business or for, for the issue that you're looking at. And so essentially what we're saying is, you know, this driver of change, if we apply it in the future to, to our business, you know, is it something that's more or less predictable? There are two or three things that we think will happen as a result of this based on you know, information that we have and some, some creative analysis. And then there'll be other things that we think, wow, I've got absolutely no idea what the impact of that would be. Um, you know, I could probably predict two or three things, but there might be 10 or 20 other impacts that we haven't understood because it's in an area that as a business we're not currently operating in or whatever the reason might be. So, so what you end up then is within that top right-hand corner, you have things which are high impact and high uncertainty. So those by their nature are things which are incredibly unpredictable. <laughs> and so those are the things that you want to spend your time trying to un- understand. 
those things that, you know, if they were to happen, they could be massively disruptive. And so that's a really powerful conversation to have in that top right hand box. But the other benefit of using uncertainty is that you don't end up ignoring half of what's on the matrix because you, even if it's low uncertainty, you can still plan around it. So if it's low uncertainty, it's got a couple of outcomes which we, we broadly understand. We can create some plans around those. And then anything that's kind of low impact but high uncertainty, we can fold that into a little bit of the, the day-to-day as well. So mm-hmm. it gives you a lot more scope to discuss, debate, explore, all of those things that often you know, in leadership teams, you, you might not, that might not be what you're doing when you're getting together. You might just be reporting into each other on what's happening or so, so you might be missing an opportunity really to explore some of that stuff and anticipate it. And that's a much, much more useful matrix to apply there. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate there's no one answer to this question, but mm. how often should businesses be going through this kind of process? What are, the, what are the tools that they can use to decide how frequently they should be revisiting this kind of thought process? It really depends. I think, it, I mean, it really depends on understanding what's going on within your within your own business, but also within your sector, and then trying to understand a little bit of the the key drivers that are impacting you. So I know it's a bit of a sort of dusty answer, but in, in certain sectors, you know, there'll be massive churn of competition, or there'll be massive customer churn, or there might be, you know, scarcity around some key resources, for example, and all of those factors. That's the, the kind of first part of the process is to really understand what that looks like, so that you can say, well, actually, our environment is moving really, really quickly. So actually, we need to be checking in on this once a quarter or even more regularly in some cases, you know, but for most businesses at the moment, but most businesses I work with at the moment do this on an annual basis. And I think probably that's it might be enough, but only if you consider this to be a proper cycle and not like a fresh sheet of paper every year, which a lot of businesses still do. You know, even if we're getting together annually in January, um, you know, which is a great time to do it. That, that we are we're picking up what we did last year and we're saying what's changed, what's different, what's moved faster than we expected, and then we're casting forward again rather than starting from zero again, which I see a lot. So I think, yeah, it depends on your circumstances, but understanding what the circumstances are is a really helpful thing to do and being quite analytical about how quickly you think things are changing. Um, that's a really helpful process, but also making the link between year on year, what's changing. That, that's a good answer. So, <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of building on that. One of, one of the other things you talked about that I thought was really kind of thought-provoking was mm. you drew the distinction between data and trends and signals. So when you talk yeah. about how mm. dynamic and how protein the, the, the environment you're working in might actually be, again, can you just talk a little bit about how you make the distinctions between those three sort of categories sure. of information? Yeah. And so so if you imagine two axes again, so value over time, and then these kind of three sort of waves of information, data trends and signals, data, and it's slightly unhelpful label, because I know obviously data can be predictive data as well. But but if we say data, it's called data today, let's call it that. And that makes it really clear. So, so effectively, data today is what your business is generating from the past that's giving you information today that's helpful or what you're seeing in your environment today. That's obviously really important information to have because that's that's your context. But what happens over time is that if if you're using that information and only that information to look forward, then actually it becomes less valuable as the further ahead you look, if that makes sense. So, you know, of course, what you did yesterday isn't what you're going to be doing in two years' time. So can see why that sort of falls off over time. So, so you need to overlay some other types of information. So the second category is what we call trends. So, and again, that sort of speaks for itself. But if you're thinking about that in the context of 
the sorts of information you might be wanting to look at. It would be the kind of things you might get in sector publications. It would be, you know, consumer behavior insights, that sort of stuff. So, so things that are not necessarily, you know, kind of completely mainstream and completely normal in the market today, but that give you a good sense of a shift in behavior. And these are things that can be quantified and can be measured, but that give you a sense of what that medium term might look like. And I'll come back to these labels around short, medium and long term as well in a minute. But then the third type of information that's really important to have is what we'd call uh, you know, weak signals or emergent emergent trends or, or, or and lots of different labels that, that describe the same thing. But, but here we're basically talking about the kind of thing that when you hear it, you think, ah, no way, that's, you know, that's never going to happen. Or, oh, well, that will never impact our business. You, you've got to have some of that stuff on a regular basis to challenge your thinking. Because what we know is that, you know, even, even when we talk about that as short, medium and long term, long term isn't necessarily very long term in some cases for some of these signals and in some sectors. So, you know, if you're in a, a very science based sector or technology driven sector, then actually something can go from being a signal to being day to day really, really quickly, you know, in a matter of months. And those are the things that can really shock us or disrupt us. So we've got to be much more kind of ordered about the way that we consider information. We've got to label it properly. And then we've got to challenge ourselves with those things. You know, it's, it's like you know, we all had that moment, didn't we, when at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, the World Economic Forum had that moment where we, we had all these kind of signals coming out of, of China at the time, late 2019. Mm. But the, you know, the World Economic Forum risk report does not put infectious diseases as high on impact or likelihood, you know, because again, we see the signals, but we part of us wants to kind of, pretend that it's not happening <laughs> part of us thinks when have we seen pandemics before oh well you know we've seen them and they tend to happen far away and they're quite contained but then also what we know and what we're very proud of globally is that we've gone from a world in which infectious diseases killed lots of people every year to a world in which most of us die from a non-communicable disease like a cancer or something or diabetes or something like that so so that all of these shifts have helped to code in a way of thinking about the future that makes us really vulnerable to unexpected signals. And so, again, it's worth thinking about this for, you know, in, in financial services, is that something like, you know, a market? Is that something like a, a Nigerian innovation, a Nigerian tech innovation around banking or something like what we saw with M-Pesa in Kenya, you know, and uh, text banking, basically? So so are there are there some signals like that that, that your first thought is, Oh, that's another market, though. Oh, but that's different customers. You know, our customers don't want that. Those are the things that you've got to start folding in on top of the more mainstream information to really challenge your thinking and have a proper debate about that. And you use the example of the, I've not seen it, so it's mm. long entirely got my head around the virtual ABBA tour mm. thing and how that oh, technology's yeah. <laughs> gone from being really quite peripheral fringe crazy stuff to, no, no, they're yeah, actually doing yeah. this now. That's right. And and there was a really interesting business, probably about 10 years ago, called Magic Leap, which some people might have heard of. But they were saying at the time, and they they slightly faked a video, which went viral, which was a a school gym hall and loads of kids kind of sitting around the edge of the hall. And they had a whale emerge out of the floor and kind of splash down. And it was all virtual reality, but without headsets. Mm. And of course, they then, I mean, they, they then were heavily questioned on the technology and kept saying, no, no, it's, it's proprietary technology, we can't. And it turned out, of course, they didn't really have the technology. <laughs> so it was all a bit of a hoax. However, here we are now in 2022, actually experiencing that and on a retail basis. So being able to pay, pay for a ticket and go along and see that, you know, these kind of virtual reality avatars, no one has a headset on. So again, the thing that seemed unimaginable and everyone was very quick 
to say, oh, well, that particular business has failed. So this will never happen. Of course, sure enough, it does happen where there's an application for it. So and again, that's another area that we need to challenge our thinking is that we often we think about things and the application only in our own specific context. We don't think about the other potential applications in other sectors or industries and how then that might create a kind of backward pressure on us to adapt. We tend to think just very narrowly about some of these things. And I was really struck that, I mean, a lot of your book and your, your presentation work and the workshop work, it's mm. all about getting away from groupthink. Um, yes, and you just yeah. referenced mm. the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report. Yeah. And I was looking again at that and they're, you know, they're top 10 risks in terms mm. of likelihood in going into 2020. The top five were all environmental of one form or another because that's, that's right. very zeitgeisty, isn't it? We're all very worried. Well, about and, and because at the time, you know, I mean, Australia was on fire at the mm. time, you know, so, so it was it was very, very present. And it you know, you, you see the shift, you see the shift in, in the trends across the risk report. So, you know, there is a general kind of greening happening and that's continued actually as we look forward. But but you see, you know, post-financial crisis for the next three years, the top tens were all economic risks <laughs> because so of course- Massive recency bias, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and as you say, infectious diseases just stuck, snuck in at number 10. And then I was thinking about, you know, like it's, it's 100 yeah. years ago, only 100 years ago, a handful of mm-hmm. generations, we had the you know, global flu pandemic and mm-hmm, tens mm-hmm. of millions of people died from it. And we've we've kind of forgotten mm-hmm. what communicable infectious diseases can do. And we're in a such an interesting moment, aren't we, as well, when we've got, you know, we've got terrible bird flu, rampant mm. bird flu now, you know. And so we're, we're not out of the woods yet on this at all. And so, again, there's a temptation sometimes to think, oh, well, that's it. That's the pandemic done. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, looking forward, zoonotic diseases and then, you know, antimicrobial resistance are things that we've got to be concerned about as we look forward. So we did this we did this workshop with Parmenian and, and the, mm. the exam question was, what will the profile of the consumer of financial advice look like in 2030? Mm. And that was that was the starting point of all. But I, I just wanted to talk through a little bit of the process we went through because I think that was sure. really interesting mm. as well. And you used these steep cards to, to mm. stimulate our thinking, to get our creaking, narrow minds working <laughs> and being imaginative. So just, just again, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a really interesting sure. process. Yeah, I mean, it's really important. I think it's just absolutely critical that if you're going into any of these sorts of conversations, whether you're doing a really deep process around scenario planning or whether you're just having a 10-minute conversation with your team. It's, you've got to have stimulus because otherwise those conversations can just reinforce all of your established thinking. So the stimulus usually needs to be you know, external, challenging. But, but as a rule, if you can think about those steep drivers, so social, technological, environmental, economic and political, political and regulatory drivers that might impact you, the, the job of actually generating those in itself is a really helpful process because what you'll tend to find is, and I imagine the financial services space, there's an awful lot of economic and political slash regulatory drivers that come oh, to yes. mind straight away, but some of the others might not be. Technology might be up there as well, but some of the others might not be so obvious. So so the process of doing that thinking is really helpful. And it's great to get those onto individual cards because, again, when we're using those axes, um, and you'll remember in the workshop, we used the impact over uncertainty axes. And we, we, th- we then are able to kind of place the cards where we think they belong for the question that we're looking at. And again, that triggers a debate because so much of this, I, I mean, again, it's another sort of key rule that I apply to lots of the work that I do. I just think it's so helpful to ha- have visual representations for these things. But also it's sometimes really helpful if you can be together 
having things that are a bit more tactile changes your thinking as well and just causes you to feel more engaged with the discussion that you're having, being able to move things around and see as a group whether you're aligned or not aligned is really helpful because often it's too easy if you're just having a conversation, just talking, it's too easy to just go along with each other and not not really challenge. Where seeing something in the wrong box can feel quite challenging, you know, and will make you want to sort of fight your corner. So these steep cards, and I don't know, I, I don't, Parmenian may may share them, but they're super helpful to have. And you can, if you if you just want a quick fix on these, Arup does a set that you can, I think you can buy them online still. Huh? They're all around future cities, but there will be some stuff in there that, that challenges your thinking a bit. Yeah, I mean, some of the, some of the stuff you just threw into the mix, the, mm. the 10 fastest growing cities in the world, and ten, mm-hmm. eight of the 10 are in Africa and two are in Asia. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard of any of these cities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, maybe I need to get out more. But but then when you know you threw up, and you know we're we're big on demographics and pensions. So um, but you threw up some population charts mm-hmm. comparing you know Italy, Japan, and China on the one hand with Nigeria on the other, and yeah. I think I think Saudi Arabia and various other countries would fall into the same kind of Nigeria bracket where yeah. those former countries very top mm-hmm. heavy and you know, massive demographic crisis coming down the tracks over the next fifty to hundred years mm-hmm. for those older mm-hmm. established economies. Mm-hmm. And then you look at mm. countries like Nigeria and and the, and the Middle East, a lot of African countries. That's where all the population growth is. Really young countries, mm. really profound implications as we go forward over the course of this century. Definitely, but also I think you know it's it's worth flagging that there's an enormous opportunity there in terms of the sort of vitality of some of those populations to engage them in addressing some of the challenges that we've not been able to fix, <laughs> and also to to really tap into their fresh perspectives on things. And I think it would be a real, I mean, obviously the, the kind of at the other end of the spectrum, the, the kind of elderly health and care and all of those things, that feels like a big challenge, but there are opportunities there as well, which I'll come back to in a second. But mm-hmm. but on the, on the younger end of the spectrum, you know, actually, actually tapping into that energy to, to drive innovation is a huge opportunity. And we'll, we'll need to do something because where there is a big youth dividend, often where there's a bit of a lack of social control and structure, then you do get unrest sometimes there as well, understandably, because people want change and they're not being listened to. So, yeah, we, we've got to engage with that side of the opportunity. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we tend to only talk about ageing in terms of the burden, <laughs> which feels a bit harsh. And there are some great examples, you know, again, signals, slightly strange, but one of my favourite examples is in the US where there's a scheme to engage retired people in cold case investigations. So so they get they get a sort of a, a kind of pseudo police investigator qualification and then they just comb through data to try to solve the many thousands of cold cases that are there because they've got time and they've got Brilliant. inclination. And it's you know. mentally stimulating. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. And it would be great. I mean, sign me up. I'd love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's another lovely example as well, which is a, it's a kind of an old example, but there's a great TED talk about it, which is a guy called Sugata Mitra, an Indian academic. And he, he was experimenting with how people engage with education and, and do we need to, in the internet age, do we need to teach in the way that we currently teach? And so he, he, it was called the hole in the wall experiment. And he took internet connected PCs and put them in, in holes in the wall in slums in Delhi. And sure enough, within minutes, there were kids gathered around them. You know, they were communicating with each other. They were asking questions of the internet. And then uh, at one phase in the experiment, they hooked the kids up to retired people in the UK. And so lots of kind of old grannies in Newcastle and places like that. 
And those older people, even though they couldn't speak the same, they couldn't communicate in the same language a lot of the time, they were coaching the children in their learning just by being encouraging. And they loved it because they had they had engagement with the kids and the kids loved it because they were getting all this coaching and support. So, you know, if we can think a bit creatively about, you know, what it means to be retired and, and what, what great kind of skill and experience is locked up in those people, then there's a huge opportunity there as well. That's exciting. That's interesting. And mm-hmm. so... We went through the the workshop process, and as we did so, we ended mm. up with our own two axes. In themselves, mm. I thought, given, bearing in mind we were thinking in financial services terms about yeah. what's going to influence the delivery of financial advice in 2030. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mm-hmm. might have thought it would be demographics or technology or something like that. But the axes we ended up with were identity and leadership. And that mm. tension between individualism and collectivism on the one hand and political versus corporate power on the other, which, you know, we all agreed on. We went through the whole kind of thought process <laughs> and that's where we ended up. And I thought, well, OK, that's mm. interesting. You would, I, I certainly wouldn't have predicted that in advance. Mm. And that formed the, the grid on which we then mapped out various different potential scenarios and uncertainties and mm. I just I guess my question is how typical is that kind of sort of that slightly unexpected outcome how how, mm. how does that reflect with with other workshops you've done it's really typical to be honest it's there's a little bit of magic in this as well which is you know it very much depends who's in the room the conversations that you've had so we could run that same exercise with 10 different groups and get different axes every time although I think for for those axes, it's interesting. So I left you guys on the, I think on the Monday and the following week, I was down in Cornwall with, you know, about 100 other people all thinking about the future. And particularly that leadership axis really came through strongly in all the conversations that they were having as well. Likewise, the identity axis, because really it's that, how are we going to get there? Who's going to lead us? Those are determined by those axes in terms of addressing the problems that we've got. You know, will it be, you know, is government, you know, financially equipped to address the challenges? Is it imaginative enough, creative enough, driven enough? Or do we have to rely on on corporate leadership to do that? And the same with identity, you know, so so much of what we need to address in the long term is determined by whether we look after ourselves or whether we collectively try to solve the problems. And so those are helpful axes just to frame the extremes, you know, so in a, in a, we had some very creative, didn't we, worlds that, that came out of it. But, but that's why this is helpful because, you know, we probably all have a set of assumptions about how things will be solved. And these axes really help to stretch that in ways that I think none of us would have otherwise got to without having had that, that so, work together. So we mapped out these four, four scenario worlds. And, and you know, if, mm. if anyone's interested to, to find out more, the Parmenian have put together a report on it. But those, so I, I won't go into all the detail now, but the four worlds we came up with were labelled We're So Beautiful, Born in the USA, Planet Earth PLC, and my particular favourite, Merry England 2.0. <laughs> but within those four scenarios, I mean, there were some widely divergent considerations around a whole mm. spectrum of things like the use of data, tax policy, investment mm-hmm. priorities, healthcare, you know, resource distribution across society, how much we focus on the environment. It was all in there, wasn't it? It was it was mm-hmm. it was really mm-hmm. interesting just to see it all out on the table. Mm. And you are trying to create worlds, you know, because I think otherwise, you know, the, the titles are really helpful as well because you want these to be memorable and the title to trigger something when people hear it so it shouldn't feel like a sort of a a typical kind of report title but then equally 
as you say, you know, what we're trying to create are worlds that feel internally consistent. Yes. Because otherwise you end up with a load of random predictions. And if one of them is wrong, then it sort of makes you feel like everything is probably wrong. But, but when you create a, a world, then what you're able to do is say, well, look, oh, if, if this was slightly different in this world, how would that have a knock-on effect on all the other things that we thought would be in there? And so, again, it just becomes a much more, it makes the conversation a much more live one rather than saying, you know, we, we came up with these projections for 2030 and here we are now in 2024 and it doesn't look like we're going to get to any of them. So we'll just chuck them in the bin and we'll do another load, you know, but it's much more helpful to say, well, actually, oh, the timelines that we that we predicted, which again are in the report, you know, the pathways, four really divergent pathways yes. to get to these scenarios. So the the pathways that we set out aren't evolving in the way that we expected. They're faster or slower or they're different. And then you can cast that forward into the scenario and say, well, how does that mean the scenario might change? So it becomes much more of a live conversation. In, in your book, you talked a, a mm. lot about the risks and uh, of siloed thinking and one of the one of the key mm. elements of if, if you're implementing this process in, in a corporate context is you've got mm. to get by and you've got to get everyone to sort of work together on all of this but look businesses mm. tend to operate in silos you get vertical yeah. lines of responsibility <laughs> and accountability that's just yeah. how it works so, so how do you mitigate that how do you work against that so i think you know one of the things that you can do that's really really simple is is just think about you know what are the ceremonies in your business what are the times but you know if you have a kind of a all hands meeting or a team stand up or you have your board meetings or you know what are the kind of times when you get together and, and are not just getting on with the day-to-day and look at ways that you can use those ceremonies to be more connected. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, both Ruth and I experienced a lot in, in doing this work is that when we were consultants, we would be brought in separately by the business to do the work in a separate silo. And actually, we would we would be the ones that were kind of saying, oh, well, look, you know, we should try to, let's just connect these two pieces of work or but at the point at which things have been done and you're trying to retrospectively connect the outcomes, it's probably too late. So the more you can have a conversation where you say, well, you know, could we get, if we're all around the table together or or even if we're around the table in one team, could we invite somebody from another team just to come and join us, listen in, give us any thoughts? You know, there, there are lots of ways that you can start to disrupt some of those silos without necessarily really disrupting the day-to-day too much. Um, because I, I do understand that, you know, at, at any point in time, businesses are dealing with all sorts of different threats and all sorts of different pressures. But but just opening up some of those ceremonies to slightly different thinking or to different people can be really helpful. Just way of starting to make people a bit more curious about what's going on. Yeah, makes sense. I was struck, you know, at the, at the end of your book, you just kind of throw mm. in a handful of questions as as just kind of high level stuff. And I thought... There was just one I wanted to pick out from that because that intrigued mm. me. So your questions were, mm. what is broken that needs fixing? Where is value mm-hmm. being lost? When was the last time something mm. significant changed in the way things are done? Are customers mm. really delighted? And then this last one mm. just caught my curiosity. Are we contributing to climate change or a part of the solution? And I'm intrigued yeah. by why you threw that <laughs> one in there. So just, just talk about just that because. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So for me, that's the biggest disruption that we face long term. That that's the thing. You know, if there's anything to spend your time thinking about, it's that. <laughs> because anything else is just moving the deck chairs, isn't it? You know. And so I think we we got a really go and it was in, I had a really interesting conversation with someone about this recently, which was about the, you know, it was just about stuff actually. So if we think about stuff, there's probably enough stuff in most categories of stuff on the planet already. And so the business model of the future should be a sharing economy model yes. around some of that. 
And again, I, part of that goes to, you know, the investors out there that are funding 20 startups, knowing that only one of them will be successful. Yeah, I'm not sure that model is really okay anymore. You know, I think the question has to be for everything that I am giving funding to, even if it falls over, will that thing produce a load of kind of crap in the, in the short term that's damaging to the planet, whether that's stuff or whether it's marketing messages or whether it's behaviors that are really consumptive. I think we've got to be a, a really, you know, the time is now. And it, one of the things that, that frustrates me more than anything else is, is people talking about, oh, young people will solve these problems, you know, and I think to some extent they will because they have to. But actually, it's on us to kind of to actually turn off the tap on a lot of the stuff that we're doing that's unhelpful. And, you know, I understand that there has to be a transition and, you know, that there are concerns around jobs and so on. But I think that balance is possible to achieve. But if your business is doing something that's contributing to climate change, then you should really stop. <laughs> you know, that should be obvious. <laughs> so I guess possibly you've just answered this question. I'm going to ask it anyway, because you might give me a completely different answer. The thing I wanted to just kind of conclude with is, you know, you're a futurologist. You spend a lot of time mm. looking at a lot of information. You talk to a lot of businesses. You you really think about the future a mm. lot, right? So mm. What's, mm. what's the thing that worries you most? about the future it's the human factor it, it's short-term thinking it's you know head in the sand thinking that's the thing that worries me the most because actually we have the solutions the solutions exist and have existed for some time what, what's absent a lot of the time is the will to implement those solutions and the will and the ability to implement those is locked up in quite a small part of the population you know there are plenty of other people who are just kind of victims in all of this because they they live in extreme poverty and you know so how can we expect them to <laughs> to come up with the solution and and that's what worries me is you know we've got the kind of wealthiest people on the planet you know investing in you know setting themselves up in space or building a bunker pulling, um, pulling up the drawbridge know, that's yeah. not helpful <laughs> exactly that's really that's what worries me and and also and again one of the things that we if i can have two things but yeah, one yeah, of the yeah, things yeah. that we touched on in the workshop is that brilliant data. So there's a, a, a business called, a charity actually, I think called VDEM, which is linked to Gothenburg University. And they they study the health of democracy around the world. And they've got some, you know, kind of worrying data about the growth of autocratization around the world. And then the, the, the percentage of the global population that lives in an autocratic regime. And it's, it's high, you know, it's, it's kind of in excess of 55 or 60%, I think, if not higher. And so so that worries me that we, in, in seeking solutions to really complex problems, we go for the simplest one, which which often might be someone telling us that they, they know what it is. And actually, I think we ought to question that a bit more and trust ourselves to be part of the solution or at least expect to be engaged in the solution. Yeah, interesting. There's trade-offs there. And I guess, you know, there was that flourishing in the sort of late 80s, 90s when mm. Soviet Union was collapsing and and, mm. and, the, and the new world order was liberal and bright and lovely. And yeah. it, it, does, it turns out it didn't, it didn't entirely last. <laughs> so. mm. Mm. That's it, yeah. So look, the book, The Disruption Game Plan, where can people find it? Uh, you can get it on Amazon or you can go in all good bookshops or you can go directly to the publisher, Practical Inspiration Publishing. But yeah, I, th I think, but maybe Tom, we can offer people a discount who, who've listened i can do a discount if that if that's good <laughs> i don't know if it, is that an easy way to is there an easy way to share a discount with people i have no idea i'm not i've my, my experience of book retailing is very limited oh no so, so i can i can do a discount code it's just okay. whether there's somewhere that people can go to get the code or if uh, they can contact you maybe and ask yeah, for the code yeah if they, if they, they, they contact me and ask yeah. for the code we'll do that or um, me and if, or they and can if, contact me and i'll do it as well and yeah. if people want to get in touch with you where will they find you 
best place is LinkedIn, just Eleanor Winton on LinkedIn. And then, yeah, please do get in touch and send messages. I love to hear from people and discuss and debate all of this stuff. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much, Ellen. Pleasure. Yeah, lovely to talk to you, Tom. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.